Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Fidelity Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, Denise Chisholm, joins us again today for a look at earnings season and the positive momentum we've started to see in equity markets lately. One key theme we're seeing emerge from earnings is that consumers are resilient and are continuing to spend, despite today's inflationary environment. Now, we ponder if this will have an effect on the Fed's interest rate decision next month. And are these gains in the market temporary, or is there more room to run? Denise joins host Brian Borsakowski to unpack this and more, including looking at recession fears and sharing her thoughts on sectors to watch and avoid. This podcast was recorded on October 25th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So, you know, obviously a lot happening in the world right now. Uh, We're still seeing high inflation numbers. Rates are uh, expected to continue to rise. Just maybe give me a lay of the land as to what you see from the markets and just kind of the economy in general. Yeah, I mean, we can tackle inflation first, since that's top of mind for everyone. And I think that there was some interesting uh, data in the last CPI that was released. We saw a slight reacceleration, but I think it was really interesting when you look at the components and isolating those components. One of the biggest drivers to the upside surprise was that shelter component. Uh, when you look at all of the indicators, from mortgage purchase applications, from what we know what happens after mortgage rates increase, um, all the housing starts, housing sales, all housing indicators have taken a big tick down. That's usually a leading indicator for shelter inflation with a long, a very long lag, right? This is why, like you remember, that we often call inflation a lagging indicator. So we know that there are long lags for the shelter component. So if you want to sort of decompose inflation and break it down, we can look at everything ex-shelter. And ex-shelter on a run rate basis, the moving three-month average is actually around zero and slightly declining. So I think that that might highlight just the fact that, again, when the shelter component potentially trues up to more live house market data over time, the less the, the rest of the CPI is showing less of an inflation problem than I think many many investors actually expect. That's interesting. So so what does that mean? What does that mean for for investors and kind of the economy maybe at large? Yeah, I think that, you know, Component number two, I think, to the interesting argument is as much as we talk about macro factors and people talk about, well, it's all about inflation or it's all about the Federal Reserve and it's all about rates, I see the data very, very differently. And it's all about how much stocks are discounting. I think what's very, very rare right now is that we've actually gone peak to trough in terms of contraction about you know, just over 25% before a recession actually happens. So, you know, in some ways, the way to think about that is statistically, can you discount a recession before it happens? And I think the more I study the data, the more I think that the answer to that is a very unconventional, yes, I think that you can. 
because a lot of those discounting mechanism mathematics that I look at, whether it be valuation spreads or other indicators, are saying that that level of fear, regardless of what's happening in the overall economy, is in place. And I'll give you just one example, which is zero global leading indicators right now, zero are advancing. So as much as we're not seeing an unemployment rate increase in the United States, which would be what the NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, needs to declare the U.S. in recession, we are certainly seeing a struggle globally in terms of leading economic indicators, right? Zero. So we know the worse this is on a trailing basis, the more opportunity there is on a go-forward basis. Look, a lot of times what you see is stocks go down in the face of what might look like okay news, but discounting that news in advance such that stocks often go up and bottom potentially even on bad news. So where are we then sort of in this cycle of uh, stocks falling? Are they going to fall more, do you think, or are, are we reaching that bottom? Yeah, so without trying to bottom pick, because I, I don't try and time it, and one of the reasons why, and you can sort of see it palpable for anybody who was investing in the great financial crisis, you know, back in 2009, a lot of these indicators started showing the same sort of levels of fear that I'm talking about, whether it be valuation spreads, zero leading economic indicators, all of those things that you say, ding, 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 okay, stocks are discounting a lot. They all started to happen in January, February of 2008. Well, into that March low, stocks did fall another 20%. I think it was 15 to 20. I don't remember the exact range. But if you were an investor looking through that potential bottom, you were in the money by meaning stocks were actually up by an average of 5% by April. So that's sort of a mathematical way of saying, look, I don't pick bottoms because that last trajectory that is that downtrend, you tend to get back the quickest. I don't want anybody to get, I don't, I certainly don't want to get whipsawed by that. I don't think it's helpful to get investors whipsawed by that. So I always say that the indicators that I'm looking at look through that potential bottom to see if there's opportunity on a one-year basis. And all of the indicators, and I do this, I do it weekly on LinkedIn. I usually have my charts of the week and I sort of beat a dead horse in the sense that a lot of the indicators that I'm seeing time and time again are offering, you know, 80 to 100% historic odds of a stock market advance over the course of the next year, led by importantly, economically sensitive or cyclical sectors. Great. So, so yeah, let, let's dig into that a bit. So if there, so you're saying, I, just to make sure we're clear, there is an opportunity here to get into the markets. Um, and so where are some of those opportunities that you're seeing? Yes. So I definitely think that there is an opportunity in the markets. Um, you know, just generally, you know, I, I don't get dissuaded by equity market volatility, right? Because I'm an equity market investor. Stocks do often go down 25%. The reason why you own stocks is because on average, long-term averages, they go up by an average of 8%. But that 8% trade-off for those very good nominal returns is this extreme level of volatility. So in studying the equity market, it's hard to sort of get me freaked out by you know, a peak to trough contraction of 25%, as much as this is certainly um, you know, an impact for investors, it's not statistically illogical you know, when you study history. But what I think is, again, back to the, as much as we're sort of convincing ourselves that this is a macro market and we need to just you know, think about interest rates and what's the Fed gonna do, I see relative valuation as much more predictive. And by that, I mean, Defensive sectors and factors are very expensive right now. They've only been more expensive when I aggregate them all together about 4% of the time historically. 
that's consumer staples, that's utilities, that's the pharmaceutical section of healthcare, that's a little volatility as a factor. All of that as a starting point is quite expensive, such that when you look forward, even if you think that you knew the outcome for the market, whether the market went up or down, those stocks tend to lag because whatever you are afraid of is more often than not, which is not to say every case priced in. So that creates the opportunity or the margin of safety for things that have already priced in the potential coming recession, the potential earnings decline, which are the economically sensitive sectors. So I would highlight consumer discretionary, which we've talked about a lot on this show, you know, going into that June low that we have right now held in the, in the overall market. What you saw is consumer discretionary stocks were only worse in that prior six months one percent of the time historically that's a very effective way of saying that they've discounted a lot financials we've talked about a lot as well i think that there's an opportunity there because when you look at these valuation levels even if you knew that the unemployment rate was going to increase you might be surprised to know as a financials investor that the stocks can still outperform in a mild to modest recession given these levels of valuation support. And then I'd say opportunity number three that I'm starting to write about more and more on my LinkedIn is within the mid-cap space, specifically industrial. There's a lot of valuation support relative to the big caps and on, a, on both a price-to-book basis, on a price-to-earnings basis, and there is a lot of fear that I judge by using valuation spreads. Valuation spreads is just the gap between anything within industrials that's cheap versus expensive, and it's that gap that you get when investors sell anything they think is risky, they buy anything they think is safe. That gap usually provides an opportunity to look forward a year and usually provide yourself some alpha. Great. So let, let, let's dig into this a little bit. Um, I mean, it's interesting that you say, uh, you know, defensive looking into consumer discretionary versus consumer staples. I think a lot of investors still you know, would think, hey, we need to get defensive. But you're saying kind of there's opportunities elsewhere, um, you know, in the discretionary market, you know, is it broad? Where do you look at look at that? And um, and, and do you find, you know, it's, is this a different kind of playbook than it was maybe in 2008 that people naturally kind of gravitate towards? So every cycle is very different, um, but that doesn't mean that the relative performance isn't similar. So part of the argument is, look, this cycle is so different. We have inflation, we have the Fed, we haven't seen anything like this since the 70s, and the 70s aren't exactly a playbook. Look, there is no playbook. Every recession, earnings contraction, difficulty in the market, it is all different. But sometimes the outcomes you can see in history. And I think consumer discretionary is an interesting one because that was sort of the canary in the coal mine to the you know coming downgrade that we're seeing in earnings. And we can talk about more about earnings at the aggregate level if you want. But that's where we really saw consumer discretionary started to peak from a forward earnings perspective about in February. What's interesting about consumer discretionary is if you look at how long consumer discretionary's earnings declines tend to last, they're pretty narrow range. They're around 12 to 13 months. So if you say, okay, we know the consumer discretionary, there's going to be no upside surprise in earnings. Um, you know, where, you know, can you look within consumer discretionary to see earnings surprises? Probably not, right? His history is a guide that this is probably going to be a long life cycle. But you can also see that stocks discount that bad news in advance. And they bottom nine months before the earnings bottom. So that sort of shows you that you can't necessarily buy parts of the consumer discretionary where you think the bright spots are. And this is the trick to using sort of that historical map that can show you that stocks can discount a lot of the bad news in advance. But if you want to buy it based on where you'll think 
you'll see the good news. It's almost the opposite trajectory. So in some ways, the opportunity, you know, in the consumer discretionary sector from the valuation perspective is, I think, on an equal weighted basis. And, you know, I see it more on like from a, you know, what works perspective, more on a factor perspective than, well, you'd like to buy, you know, either specialty stores or you'd like to buy retail or you might like to buy home builders. What has worked historically when consumer discretionary works historically is cheap stocks. And I think that you can find them in lots of sectors right now. It tends to happen more often on an equal weighted basis relative to a cap weighted basis. But I think that there's opportunities across the spectrum. Uh what about financials? Um, we saw some positive earnings um, from some financial companies. Um, how are earnings looking to you? And, and financials is interesting um, in that you, you, you know, you, interest rates rise, they should do better, but there's lots of worry about bad loans and how that might impact the, the sector, but you're positive on it. So what are you seeing from earnings and, and why are you positive on the sector? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the reason I'm positive on the sector is like number one through five is really going to be valuation support on both you know, relative price to book uh, and relative forward earnings or relative forward PE. When you look back historically, you, know, you might be shocked to know that we're actually cheaper than we were in the great financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So I think that shows you like, even if you're concerned about credit, you can oftentimes price in a deteriorating credit environment. However, that said, Certainly high yield spreads, which is sort of a measure of the coming concern over solvencies or bankruptcies um, relative to inflation, is elevated, but it's actually peaked and potentially declining. To the extent that inflation has peaked and continues to decline or decelerate, not decline from an overall perspective, but a deceleration in inflation, that has historically been correlated to a positive environment for credit. And I think despite the fact that we think that financials are rate plays, I think that what we see more often than not is that credit has more of an impact to the relative performance than rates or inflation or anything else. And that's why financials haven't acted in a traditional way. So I think that if you could get a sweet spot because earnings are still strong and have provided a bit of upside uh, surprise that we have seen, but I think that the real reason why you should be interested as, as an investor is to the extent that valuation is strong support, you've got a lot of odds regardless of the credit environment, regardless of potentially, you know, whether or not the unemployment rate increases slightly, which wouldn't be a surprise to see over the course of the next 12 months either. Just generally, like, uh, you know, more broadly, maybe outside financials, just what are you seeing from earnings? Um, you know, what, what are some of your takeaways from the last couple of weeks? Yeah, so earnings is funny because in some ways we, we go through the same pattern every time. We're like, well, you know, earnings numbers have to come down. And it's true, like 80% of the years since 1962, earnings numbers start really high and they come down throughout the course of the year. That doesn't necessarily mean stocks go down. Obviously, stocks go up 75% of the time. So obviously, we had a little bit of a mismatch. But what we're seeing is what we usually see historically. Numbers come down over the course of the quarter and then companies surprise to the upside. Sure, the beats are a little lower than they were over the course of the last, you know, let's call it two and a half years, which were the most egregious beats that we've ever seen. So I think that some of the numbers, and they're variable because it depends on who's reporting in the day, but, you know, I think 60 to 70% of, of companies that have reported earnings are beating expectations. Um, and that's true on both an earnings and sales level. But if you step back, and I actually just did a report on this uh, internally, it will show up on my LinkedIn at some point. I think I'll talk about it on my webinar, which is later on this week, the investment research up 
investment research update. Um, what you find is what's interesting is even if you say, okay, leading indicators are quite poor, so earnings are likely to decline over the next year. Is that logical? Probably. I mean, it's not like over 50-50, but you know, it certainly reduces your probability of an earnings, you know, upside surprise over the course of the next year. So if you say, all right, now we've seen this narrative, you know, we've seen the compression in terms of multiples, and now we're about to see the downside in earnings. So if you wait for that as an investor, you say, this is the final shoe to fall. We have to wait for that before we potentially get bullish. So you can look back in history and you say, okay, if you knew earnings were going to decline over the next year, what are your odds of stock advancing in that environment? You'd probably say, like, I don't know, 10, 20. No, it's actually 65. And the reason why that 65 exists, and actually it's an average return of 7%, the entire reason that 7% can exist is because the prior year, you see on average 2% returns, right? So it's again, that zig and zag of what you see traditionally. Let's recognize this historical pattern so, and be open-minded as investors to what more often than not actually happens. It's stocks go down when earnings are strong, and then stocks advance when earnings are weak. It seems backwards, but really what you usually get more often than not is multiple appreciation when earnings declines, which cushions the blow. We even saw this in 2009. Remember, I mean, stocks got, did get down to 10 times earnings, but you didn't want to buy them at 10 times earnings. That was actually, you know, like 30% higher than where stocks bottomed. Stocks bottomed at 15 to 16 times earnings, right? Because when earnings go down, the multiples actually advance to cushion that blow. So that's another way of thinking about, look, can you discount an earnings recession before it even happened? And I think statistically the answer is yes, because we didn't just advance 2% last year in the stock market, we actually went down 25%. The more I pin that 2% to double digit declines, the more that 7% goes to 20% and those odds go from 65 to 80 which again, just shows you mathematically, the more you go down, the more likely you are to advance despite the fact that earnings is. So I don't wanna say that you don't necessarily care about earnings right now as an investor, but I'm not necessarily certain that it's gonna give you the best guide of what stocks can do. That's, that is, that's very interesting because, uh, you know, I've talked to other people and who say that uh, multiples could continue to fall if earnings decline. Um, and, you know, that makes them, I guess, a bit nervous about different parts of the market. Um, but you're kind of saying the opposite here. So this sort of, it feels like it goes against a little bit about investor sentiment and, and how people should feel. So how do you uh, maybe get through the fear that you're feeling thinking, well, earnings are going to decline, we're going into this major recession and see those opportunities that you're talking about? Yeah, in some ways, I, I think major recession might be different, right? So in some ways, I think that if your base case is a major recession, like a financial crisis, you know, maybe that your risk reward is potentially different. But I think what's evident to me in the data is that stocks can absolutely historically discount mild to moderate recessions. Right. So I think that that's what you see statistically. And, you know, remember when you look at recession, we just went through the pandemic. We essentially discounted the one of the most severe contractions we've ever seen in real GDP. Uh, maybe not over the course of like a trough, but certainly uh, with, you know, from a contraction perspective, you know, just in one or two or three quarters. And we actually discounted that contraction in just one month. And we know also statistically that stocks bottom, you know, if we look back and we, you know, say, when did the NBER say that there was a recession in place in the United States? 
stocks can bottom, you know, anywhere from 25 to 75% of the way through, right? So we know that by the time the recession's over, it's sort of potentially too late. From any time the stock market has a low, from whatever that low is, the next two years gains, 75% of those gains from that low are actually in by the time the recession's over. So if you wait to buy on bad news, you usually miss the best parts of the market. So, you know, how do you, how do you uh, sort of stay, you know, convinced is, you know, I think that there's, there's two ways, which is, you know, to have a plan and stick to your plan, regardless, to try not to sell on bad news, because statistically, that's not the best way to sort of make money, and to consider dollar cost averaging, which is when you do it over time, when you just invest a little bit all the time, you sort of invest through the downtrend that gets you those additional returns whenever the stock market does turn. So just, just on the recession uh, topic for a minute, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the IMF put out the, this report and saying the worst is yet to come, lots of strong language. Um, do you, you know, what are your thoughts on, on, on that recession? Will it be mild? Will we have one? Um, a lot of people are concerned about that. Even if, even if now's a good time to get in the stock market, they're still worried about all sorts of other things. Yes. Well, will we have one? Yes. I mean, we will have one at some point. I think that the overall question is when, uh, will we have one next year? Perhaps. Is it likely to be mild in the United States? I would say yes. Partly because I think that we have two things that are very, very different from any time really in the last 20 years, which is a very solid state of finances in the U.S. consumer and in corporate America. That's been sort of, you know, over the last 20 years, the real problem area that creates an impetus for either financial crises or a real significant downturn. So when you think about the deleveraging that we've seen in the household sector, it's been, you know, extreme such that even debt levels as a percentage of income, forget debt service and interest rates, and we can argue about that, but just overall debt levels, we're down to, you know, levels that we were at in 2000, which means, you know, in some ways past that, you know, past the peak of the great financial crisis, we really wiped out 20 years of debt just on stronger balance sheets for the U.S. consumer. When you look at debt service, we're not only at all-time lows, we're through all-time lows. And even the increase in rates that we've seen, when you think of overall debt for the U.S. consumer, it's mostly in housing. Most household mortgages are at this point fixed. So I don't think debt service is necessarily going to be a drag. So that's a long-winded way of saying the U.S. consumer is in pretty good shape right now. And there are some, I would say, you know, bright spots on the horizon with inflation decelerating. What you could see certainly over the course of the next year is real incomes potentially rising as wage inflation is a bit stickier than inflation, perhaps, so that real wages might actually cushion the blow. And I think I see the same in terms of corporate America. When I look at U.S., you know, a lot of the scare charts are U.S., um, I would say, corporate debt relative to GDP, well, you shouldn't put it relative to GDP, right? You should put it relative to corporate cash flows or, or corporate America's some sort of measure of profitability, which is not GDP. I mean, there's been really minimal correlation between GDP aggregate and corporate profitability, which you can just chart in terms of margins, right? We're at peak margins and higher margins on an equal weighted basis than we've ever seen in history. So when you look at corporate America relative to profitability and relative to the free cash flow that it produces, debt levels are at all time lows. So I think that those two things, I think, dictate the potential severity of the recession that we need to consider. 
You mentioned real estate. I know that is on one of the, your list of one sector to potentially uh, avoid. Um, why, why is that? Yeah, so my, I would say my bottom three are all kinds. I'm going to call them like quasi-defense, right? Utilities I've picked on quite a bit, partly because, you know, the ROEs are no better over time and we're at the most expensive levels uh, in history, right? Utilities, generally speaking, don't have strong odds in any market environment. They tend to underperform. They only outperform when the market is potentially going down or investors are afraid. I shouldn't say the only time they outperform. They outperform in size when those things are occurring, and we have seen that occur. So now we've seen the defensive rotation. We're back at expensive levels. We've seen the same thing with consumer staples as well. Both of those tend to have more stable earnings power, which is why investors gravitate to them during times of volatility. But it's usually when they're expensive, they tend to underperform. Real estate is sort of the worst of all worlds. So it's a quasi-defensive in the sense that I'm going to use the term sort of bond proxy. Um, and those stocks, at least on my numbers, and people can you know, disagree in terms of how you value real estate, but are still expensive, just like utilities and just like consumer staples are. But their earnings power is a lot more volatile across the spectrum. So I think that, you know, there's more downside to earnings with real estate. I don't see um, any kind of valuation support. So from that perspective of all that, I'm going to call them quasi-defensive sectors because they were only really, real estate was only defensive the last, let's call it eight years. Historically, it's it's a cyclical, right? You would put it in, you know, it certainly wasn't defensive at all in the financial crisis, right? So it doesn't particularly provide you defensive characteristics, but I think people have gravitated towards it this cycle more than last. But I think that there's still a lot more earnings volatility and that double whammy of potential downside to both relative earnings and relative multiple expansion makes it one of, I think, the weakest opportunities in the market. Um, so, just moving on to, you know, lots of talk of interest rates in, in Canada and the U.S. Where do you think the Federal Reserve will continue to go? Will we see rates continue rising from here? When does it end? <laughs> so I don't know what the Federal Reserve will do. I am certain they don't call me, nor do they ask my opinion. So the only thing that I can give you is that the, the, the data that I see. So if they are assessing inflation as a problem, and that is what you know, they want to target interest rates to, the, way, the math that I look at historically is looking at that run rate of inflation. So a couple of things that we've talked about before, but that annualized run rate of the core PCE deflator, which is the Federal Reserve's preferred definition of inflation, because um, there is a big difference between the CPI and the PCE deflator. The run rate of the PCE deflator right now is around 4 to 5%. This is meaningfully different than what we saw in the inflationary crises of the 70s and 80s, right? That run rate was around 10 to 12%. So when you think about what the Fed wants to do, I think you need to think about that historical context as well. What is the scope of the problem? Point two is the scope of the problem that I just pointed out is that a big component, especially in the CPI, because it's 40% of the CPI shelter, only 20% of the PCE deflator, is what we've seen is this sort of, I, I wouldn't say it's erratic because you know certainly rents are lagging and still increasing, but this acceleration in shelter costs that is not likely to be sustained given the leading the housing market. I think Ed Hyman actually has great charts on how long this lead lasts or long the lag lasts. And it's usually about a year to a year and a half. And I would say housing 
prices on the Case-Shiller Index, on the NAR median prices, they peaked about a year ago. So you could say that, okay, we're due for that potential deceleration of shelter, maybe any time. I don't think people at the Federal Reserve right now are saying, no shelter is never going to accelerate. We need to increase rates more to really get housing to slow. I think that there's a significant amount of indicators that they're looking at. They're saying housing is slowing potentially. So maybe that portion of the CPI deserves, I don't want to say less attention, but is not giving us a true what the run rate might be next year. And again, when you look at X shelter inflation, even in the CPI, the annualized run rate is around zero right now. So if everything just stayed where it was on a six month basis, that would be around zero. So that's sort of a long winded mathematical way to say that maybe the Fed needs to do less than investors think. So if the run rate of inflation is currently between four and five, we just talked about all those headwinds. We talked about all the potential slowing. If that downshift is even to, let's call it between three and four, a peak or terminal rate of five, which would be a real rate of potentially two, is sufficient to keep inflation contained, at least historically speaking. So we just have, we just have about you know, 30 seconds left. I'm just curious about the bond market um interest rates while they're rising and they're making bonds more attractive and they're you know the risk-free rate has increased so how does that potentially impact the stock market from an attractiveness point of view yeah it's interesting because i i think that we are potentially setting up for a flip of what we've seen in the last nine months which was equities and bonds contracting together from a total return perspective. And now there looks to me to be opportunities in both equity and bonds. And I would say that, you know, I, I'm glad I'm not an asset allocator right now because I actually, I found a few statistics and I think I put these on my LinkedIn. I found a few statistics where you can see that in this environment, bonds are actually providing more total, total return historically than stocks. So I think that there are opportunities across the spectrum for investors and I wouldn't surprised if there's better opportunities in oh uh, sorry cut out there for one second um uh well thank you that's good timing because uh we're at the end of the show um thank you so much for joining us lots to discuss this is, i'm sure we'll continue going on for quite a while so we'll talk again soon um but thank you so much for for being here of course it was great to be here brian thanks for listening to the fidelity connects podcast if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.